While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If, only, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but she's sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, and let me add my welcome to Jennings. We're so glad that you're here this morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And like I said, we're delighted uh, that you're here, whether you've uh, been coming for a long time or this is your first time. Uh, really glad that you've chosen uh, this morning to come through these doors. And I know if you're newer, you're looking for a church home, um, visiting churches for the first time isn't an easy thing to do. So thanks for taking the time to be with us this morning to do that. Um, here at Christ Community. We're so glad uh, that you're here with us. I'd like to begin, um, before we look at the passage that Jenny read for us, by praying. And we do that each week before we um, look at the scripture together, because as powerful as the Word of God is, just written on the page, um, without the help of His Spirit actually bringing it into our lives and preparing our hearts, it, it doesn't actually do the work of, of transformation. And so we want to ask, as whenever we, whether it's just on your own or whether they're corporately together, um, prayer is a conversation with God's word ultimately. And so we want to begin um, as we look into this uh, passage from the Gospel of Matthew, um, that God would be working in my heart and each one of our hearts to understand uh, how he'd want us to respond uh, to what he's saying here. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you've given us uh, your word, not merely uh, so that we can get information about you, but that we can truly know you, and that uh, in hearing your word and doing your words, we would build our lives in the firm foundation of Jesus the rock. Um, would your spirit do that now as we look at the word that he has inspired in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, that passage that Jenny read for us, it ended one of the refrains where that Jesus was healing every disease and every affliction. And healing every disease and every affliction. There are lots of these sorts of words in the Gospels, these biographical, theological accounts of Jesus' life. The one we're studying now is Matthew. There are lots of words, phrases like this in the Gospels that make them seem a little bit less like real history and a bit more like a fairy tale. That make them seem not quite like, oh, this is Matthew writing down what actually happened and a bit more like a fairy tale. Because we read that summary statement and we think, okay, teaching 
good, no, no problem, proclaiming this good news of the kingdom, sure. But healing every disease? I mean, how many times have you prayed for a miracle? I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, whether you believe in miracles or not, how many times have you longed for one? As a pastor, I'm often up close in situations where people are longing for Jesus to intervene. Whether it's pulling up to someone's home who has just had a miscarriage. Or pleading with God to repair a marriage that seems so smashed that it just can't be reconciled. We're praying with a family whose, whose child has rejected them and cut them out of their lives or dealing with physical pain that just won't go away and the doctors don't know what's wrong and can't seem to find a solution. Or, or the protracted loneliness of singleness when it seems like everyone else you know is getting married except for you. Have you ever just begged God to do something I think we all have, haven't we? Uh, For some of you, it feels like you've spent your whole life asking, waiting, longing for God to do something for you. For others, you're in the middle of that crisis right now. This is live for you. Everything, it seems like, is influenced in your life by this moment of crisis. And if you haven't had that moment yet, there's coming a day when you will. And you're going to say, God, please, can you do something here? And so then we read about Jesus raising the dead, healing a bleeding woman, healing two blind men, giving speech to another. And it's clear that Matthew is showing us that, that Jesus is Messiah. He is the Son of God, and he doesn't want us to miss this. This is what Matthew wants us to see in this text, is that Jesus can Jesus can. You name it and he can do it. Whatever problem you have, Jesus can. Whatever fear is robbing you of sleep at night, Jesus can. The two words always remain the same. Whatever situation you're facing, Jesus can. But here's the problem. Even if you happen to believe that Jesus can, So often in our experience, it seems like Jesus doesn't, or that Jesus won't, that he doesn't fix all of our problems, that that he doesn't heal every one of our diseases and afflictions, that, that Jesus can, but sometimes it really does feel more like Jesus won't, that Jesus doesn't. And let me say right here from the beginning that I'm not going to resolve all of that tension this morning. Uh, There's no way for us to do that here in the time that we have. Yet, as we look at this passage and the stories that make up the section of Scripture, we're going to see three essential truths that help us to navigate. Not, Not to eliminate the tension, but to trust in the midst of the tension between Jesus being able, Jesus can, and Jesus not. Jesus doesn't. Last week we saw how Jesus called Matthew, the the author of this gospel. And Matthew was a a tax collector. He was wealthy. He was despised. But he was loved and wanted by Jesus. Um, And Jesus calls him to himself. And he changes everything about him. 
Jesus said, look, it's not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. And he was using that as a metaphor last week to talk about Matthew's spiritual sickness and need. But now in this week, beginning in verse 18, we are introduced to a number of people who are in desperate need, not just of spiritual healing, but they're in desperate need of physical healing also. And the first case that we come across is by far the worst. A synagogue ruler, and the synagogue was a place where Jews would worship and learn about the Torah, the the scriptures, when they weren't at the temple. And so this person who's a synagogue ruler comes to Jesus, and he comes with awful news. He's in utter desperation. He says, my daughter has died. But Jesus, you can if you come, you can bring her back to life. I know you can. And, and as he's doing this, he's kneeling before Jesus, which would have been a shocking thing for him to do as a person of, of prominence here. So as a leader of the synagogue, he was a person of great position, of great honor, of great poise. I think probably the closest thing we could imagine, if you imagine a university president or a CEO of a, a Fortune 500 company, a person of, of sort of dignity and respect and, and position and power, just sort of falling at the feet of, of a doctor and just begging them to help heal their kid. And Jesus says, I'll go with you. And so they leave And Jesus goes with this man. But along the way, something else happens. There's a woman. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And she sees an opportunity. She too is desperate. And as she sees the crowd coming down the street, and she sees that it's Jesus, and there's this throng of people following, she thinks that maybe this is her chance. And for 12 years, she's been in pain, bleeding. Worse than the pain is the shame. I mean, her her bleeding made her ritually unclean. So that now, anytime she touches anyone or anything, that becomes unclean. I mean, can you imagine the embarrassment of that? The shame of that? She believes that Jesus can. She sees her opportunity. There's this huge crowd around Jesus, and, and maybe she thinks that if I can just accidentally bump into him, if I can just touch him just for a split second, it'll be enough. Maybe that will be enough to heal me. He doesn't even have to know. doesn't even have to know this unclean outcast has touched him. So she steps onto the road and she joins the throng trailing along with Jesus and slowly, carefully, she works her way through the crowd, probably covering her face a bit so no one recognizes her until she's now right behind Jesus. And then with a quick glance around to see that no one's watching too closely, she stretches out her hand. And momentarily she touches Jesus garment, just the corner of his jacket. And then she starts to melt back away into the crowd. And then the worst happens. Her heart racing, Jesus turns around 
And he sees her caught. You can imagine her face turns crimson. These crushing waves of shame begin to rise. And just as they are about to come crashing down on her, their eyes lock. And the text says he saw her. He sees her. I mean, perhaps for the first time in 12 years, someone sees her. Not her problem, not her condition. Someone sees her. And those eyes were not filled with disgust or condemnation, but with compassion and love and fatherly, merciful, shame-erasing tenderness. And Jesus says, take heart, be encouraged. And he calls her daughter, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly she's made well. And not just simply physically, but, but the whole of her is made well. She's restored back to her community. Um, she has this now faith to some extent in this rescuer, the Savior. Her faith, this gift of grace, was the means that God appointed for her that she might encounter Jesus. But meanwhile, while all this is happening, someone else's daughter is laying dead. And the crowd following Jesus, they they hear it before they see it. So they come around the blocks nearing the ruler's house. They hear the music, the mournful flutes, the, the mourners crying out, wailing, the women crying. There was death here. But as Jesus walks up to the house, he he looks around at all the mourners and he says two words. He says, go away. Get out of here. I mean, can you imagine Jesus walking into your house? Your, your, Your child has just died and he tells your friends, your family, the community, everyone who's gathered to, to grieve with you to go away. This is not exactly the sort of pastoral touch that we expect from Jesus in this moment. He walks in and says, go away. But that's not actually the, the real shocking thing that he says. What is shocking is what he says next. He says, the girl is not dead, she's sleeping. Wait, what, Jesus? Sleeping? Look, Jesus, we know the difference between dead and sleeping. People who are sleeping breathe, Jesus. People who are sleeping, you can wake them up, Jesus. Jesus, people who are sleeping, they're, they're warm. This, this body's cold. This, Jesus, this girl is dead. I mean, think about funerals that you've been to. You've ever been to a funeral with an open casket and walked by in a visitation? I mean, as, as good as our modern embalming techniques are and makeup, have you ever walked by an open casket and thought, is that person sleeping? I mean, whether it's the first century or the 21st century, we know the difference between dead and sleeping. But Jesus is the God of the universe. The, the wind and the waves obey him. Limp legs burst into life at his command. Bleeding stops at his word. 
And so when Jesus takes the hand of a dead girl, death doesn't stand a chance because Jesus can. And all the power of death is nothing but a light nap in the face of the author of life. And he just takes her by the hand and he raises her to life again. Uh, But why stop here? The the rumor starts spreading like crazy, and it's almost like as Matthew depicts it for us, Jesus walks to the house, and there are already two blind men following him, and they cry out, have mercy on us, son of David, Messiah, King, have mercy. And so again, Jesus stops, and he, he looks into those dead eyes that don't work, and he says to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they say. And so the one who designed the retina, the iris, the cornea, the optical nerve, he reaches out his hand and he touches their eyes and everything comes into focus. According to your faith, it's done to you. So at this point in the chapter, we're sort of like, okay, Matthew, uh, we, we get it. Jesus can. But as they're leaving, there's a man who's unable to speak, who was not able to cry out. He couldn't cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. He's unable to speak. He's unable to ask for Jesus' help. His faith isn't on display, and yet Jesus gives him speech. For the prophet Isaiah, nearly 700 years before Jesus was doing all these things, wrote these words. He says, They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God come. He will come and save you. So Isaiah is making this prediction that your God will come and he will save you. And then he tells us, Isaiah tells us, what will happen when that moment comes, when God comes to save his people? Listen to what he says. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is Jesus. He is God come to save his people. And yet it looks a little different in some people's story. And we see it later on in Matthew chapter 11, where John the Baptist, who if you've been with us in the Matthew series, you remember John was Jesus' cousin, and he was a prophet who was calling people to repentance and pointing people to Jesus. John is now imprisoned. And he will soon be executed for standing with Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't fix everything for everybody. Not like we'd want. For John, he doesn't. And in his despair, John sends some friends to find Jesus, asking him point blank, are you the Christ or not? Should we be expecting someone else or are you the one? And this is what Jesus tells John's friends to go back to him with. He says, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Which is Jesus' way of saying, yes, I'm it. There's not another one coming. I'm the one. 
So back to chapter 9. Matthew summarizes all of this with the words we heard at the start, that Jesus goes out everywhere proclaiming the good news, teaching, healing every disease, every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus can. And those who believe rejoice. And if he can do it then, if he could do it back in this time, then he can do it now. But often we feel a lot more like John the Baptist, I think, don't we? He was beheaded. He was never released from prison. Why does it sometimes feel like Jesus had compassion on them or some other family or some other person, but not on me, not on us? You see, we live somewhere in the middle Jesus has come. He's promised us everything we need. And through his life, his death, his resurrection, we know we have it. But we're not there yet. We're not whole yet. And we're waiting. We're longing for things to be made right. And in this place of tension, how do we remain faithful? How do we trust? How do we keep from either sliding into despair or cynicism? Let me draw out three observations from this account that we just read and heard preached about how we can maintain trust in the midst of this tension. The first observation is that that Jesus is more than trustworthy, even when we don't understand. Jesus is more than trustworthy, even when we don't understand. See, trust is a really fragile thing. In fact, it's probably one of the most fragile things in all of life, right? Trust has a really short half-life, especially when it comes to leaders. When it comes to anyone, but especially with leaders, we want to know, is this person who they claim to be? Will they do what they say they're going to do? And, And do they care? Do they really care? These are all vital aspects of trust. But the last one is, in particular, very essential. Does this person care, really care about me? One thing that's unmistakable in this passage is that Jesus truly cares, even when we don't understand what he's doing. Did you notice, as we heard the text read, as we went through it here, did you notice the language of touch, how often it occurs in this passage. The ruler, when he comes to Jesus, he says, come and lay your hand on her and she will live. The bleeding woman came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Jesus took the dead girl by the hand and raised her. And with the blind men, Jesus touched their eyes. Now in this time, again, in Jesus' context, touching bleeding people and dead people made you unclean. And I mean, even today, we're not super excited about touching bleeding people and dead people, right? But in Jesus, there's this incredible compassion that he comes near to us in death and blood and blindness. He isn't afraid to get his hands dirty in the mess of the world, the mess that we've made, the mess that we suffer in. He's trustworthy. He has compassion. He's come near to us. 
He understands our fears even when we don't understand what's going on in disease, in death, in sin, and in oppression. He doesn't stand far off. He isn't out there somewhere. He has come near. And he's touched real people in real messes. We can trust him. So whether you've been a Christian for a long time or whether you've wavered and walked away, whether you've never trusted him, the, the question for you today, this morning, for right now, in this moment, is will you trust him? Not, did you trust him yesterday? Not, not did you trust him 10 days ago or 10 years ago, but will you trust him today? Will you trust him in the midst of a prayer asked, not yet answered? Will you trust him in the midst of pain, fear, confusion, even when you don't understand? Pastor, author, Paul Tripp, he says, for the believer, fear is always God forgetful. Even when we don't understand, we can trust that there is nothing that Jesus can't or won't do for our good, for our ultimate best. And here's the key. Jesus ultimately invites us to himself. He is the hope. He is the healing. He says, come to me. He doesn't say, come to no more cancer or come to a new and better job. He says, come to me. So the question is, will you trust him? Him, not, not his solutions, not his blessings, not his gifts, but him. Second observation here is Jesus is more concerned with what is in us than with what is around us. He's more concerned with what's happening inside of us than all the, the chaos and circumstances around us. And the most important thing in this, these stories that we've looked at here, it's not that the man receiving his daughter back or the woman getting her life back or a blind person seeing again. It's that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the one with all power and authority and compassion. That's who Jesus, Matthew wants us to see is Jesus. Which is why Matthew draws out the responses of everyone involved in this passage. The mourners laugh at Jesus. I mean, we said, who can blame them, right? We know the difference between dead and sleeping people. The Pharisees actually acknowledge the miracles Jesus is doing, but they accuse him of using demonic power to do them. That's how hard their hearts are. Meanwhile, the crowds and all this, they, they marvel and say nothing like this has ever been done in Israel. They sort of just don't know what to think. But the people closest to it, the people actually interacting with Jesus closely in these moments, it's really clear it's their faith. You can't help but notice their faith. And let's be really clear here. It's not their faith that heals them. It somehow makes it happen. It's Jesus. Jesus chooses to heal whoever, however, whenever he wants. And keep in mind, he calls John the Baptist the greatest prophet ever. So, I mean, if someone has faith, it's John. And John dies in prison, beheaded. So don't let anyone tell you if you just have a little more faith, God will answer you and give you whatever you want. There's so many churches, so many people on TV that say if you just have enough faith, then God will do for you what you ask. 
God will not be manipulated or controlled by us somehow conjuring up enough effort or unction or belief on our own. God is in charge, not us. And yet in these stories, their desperation drives them to faith. And their faith drives them to Jesus. The one who can. They they don't have any hope left, and so they believe in the only one they can. They go to him. They seek him out. And so the question then is, what is happening inside of you in these moments? These moments of tension between Jesus can and Jesus isn't. Where do you turn in those moments? Between Jesus, I know that you can, but, I, but you're not. Do you turn to fear, fear or worry or doubt? Where do you go? To food or TV or sleep or distraction? Prayer? The scriptures, your church community. Where do you go to for relief and comfort? See, we often unknowingly, unconsciously, we sort of drift into a cynicism when it comes to prayer. Uh, Paul Miller, in his fantastic book, A Praying Life, has again and again shown me how quickly I become cynical as it relates to prayer. It's a good book. It's one I go back to often. Um, But if if the only thing that you'd get out of this book is just the section on on cynicism, it's, it's worth having. Listen to what he writes. He says, The movement from naive optimism to cynicism is the new American journey. In naive optimism, we don't need to pray because everything is under control. In cynicism, we can't pray because everything is out of control and little is possible. Cynicism's ironic stance is a weak attempt to maintain a lighthearted equilibrium in a world God mad. Without the good shepherd, we are alone in a meaningless story. Weariness and fear leave us feeling overwhelmed, unable to move. Cynicism leaves us doubting, unable to dream. And the combination shuts down our hearts so that we just show up for life, going through the motions. Have you ever had times in your life where you felt that I just show up and I'm going through the motions? You, you know, cynicism is easier. It really is easier because, because cynicism never gets hurt. It, it always thinks the worst and so it's never disappointed. It, it's easier to laugh than to believe. It's, it's easier to despise than to trust. Easier but not better easier but not better. So how do we escape cynicism when we we feel like we've lost the ability to trust, when we feel that cynicism being just the force that's starting to take over in our lives? What do we do? Let's say, look at the dead girl in this story. Look at the dead girl in the story because Jesus heals this girl even when she has no ability to exercise faith in him, right? I mean, the the woman, the blind men, they're able to sort of say, heal me, I have faith. This girl is dead. She isn't doing anything for Jesus. She's not helping him. She's not serving him. She's not earning anything. She's dead. 
You see, even your faith, even your trust, what's happening inside of you is ultimately a gift. Because that girl's story, that's every Christian's story. Every Christian was one who is spiritually dead and has been called into spiritual life, not because of anything we had to offer or could do, but because God is full of grace and mercy. So as a Christian, when you start to become cynical, when you start to say God doesn't care, he isn't answering, he doesn't, he doesn't want good things for me, as a Christian, think back on your own story. Remind yourself that you were dead, but that now you're alive, and that if Jesus loved you so much that he took you by the hand and said, rise, then surely he will not abandon you to fear and death. You see, when you have that sort of trust, we're able to focus outwardly on what Jesus is doing and calling us to do rather than being paralyzed by fear or trapped by cynicism. And this is key because Jesus is more focused on his mission than mine. Jesus is focused more on his mission than mine. That's the third observation this morning. So often my mission is me. My tasks, my comfort, my goals, my agenda my pleasure. And yes, Jesus is concerned with those things in our life. He is, but he came to do so much more than that. He didn't just come to earth and die and rise again just so you and I can have a happier 80 years here. He came for so much more than that. And when he invites us to himself, he isn't inviting us to healthier bodies, bigger bank accounts, an easier life. He's inviting us to follow him, to be made whole and join him on his mission even when it costs us. So look again at the very end of Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. This is when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like a sheep without, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And in the very next chapter, he sends out his followers into a hostile world where they will be ejected or rejected, abused, to proclaim the good news that Jesus has come. And you see, for some of us, if we just spend a little bit less time focused on our own personal missions, a little less time on building our own kingdoms, and a little more time praying that his kingdom would come. I mean, maybe that would be miracle enough in our lives. I know that's the miracle that I'm praying that Jesus would do in my life because it takes a miracle to move us from focusing on our own mission, our own kingdom, to become the kind of people who are outside of ourselves and think about others on a regular basis. Jesus can there's never a problem, there's never a heartache, there's never a crisis in your life where those two words are not true, that Jesus can. You name it, he can do it. And I know, I can't fix the tension that we feel between Jesus can and Jesus doesn't. Jesus can, but Jesus isn't. Jesus can, Jesus hasn't. And yet I know why Jesus came. And even he once prayed for a miracle, and his father said no. 
He pleaded with his father the night before his death. He said, if there's any way I could not die, not suffer, not experience the height of pain and shame and brokenness, if there's any other way, please, can that be the way? But not my will, but yours be done. And the father and all of the mystery of the Trinity says there is no other way. And Jesus willingly suffered it all the very next day on the cross for my sins. He took all the pain and all the disease and all the loss and all the shame and all the disappointment. He took it all on himself. And then he rose again. But the moment that someone tells you you just have to have enough faith in order for God to get you to do what you want, remember that Jesus even asks and doesn't receive Maybe not today. Maybe not in this life. But what we do know is true is that Jesus can. So that those who know him, who know that he can, can say loud and clear that even though it may not feel like Jesus can, maybe it feels like Jesus isn't, because of the resurrection, one day he will. Every wrong will be made right, every loss restored, every ache made whole. And just as he reached out to touch the blind man's eyes, I promise you, every one of you who is a follower of Jesus, that one day he will reach out and wipe away every tear from your eye. And death will be no more, and neither shall it be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, for he is making all things new. Jesus can, and the good news is that one day he will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that even when I don't understand what you're doing, that you can and that one day you've promised that you will, would you help us to trust Would you help us to trust that you can, even when often it seems like you aren't? And that in the midst of that trust, that you would receive glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit, amen.